Hello and welcome to Mortgage Insider from Barclays, the podcast series for mortgage brokers. I'm Phil Spencer. You may know me from a certain TV property programme. What you might not know is that I trained as a surveyor and launched and ran one of the UK's first ever property search companies. In this series, I'll be using my experience to get to the heart of the biggest issues in mortgage broking. You'll hear from industry leaders, brokers, as well as Barclays' own in-house experts. Despite the housing market slowing down and house prices cooling somewhat, the cost of home ownership remains well beyond the means of many. Housing affordability has worsened over the last 25 years, with the cost of buying a home in England at around 8.3 times average annual earnings. In this episode, we're going to be looking at different types of mortgages, including the options for first-time buyers to get on the housing ladder. We'll also touch at the other end of the scale an option for people who are in a stronger financial position, the offset mortgage. But generally, I was really interested to hear from our experts about what's new, what's interesting and what's coming down the track. First of all, here is Rebecca Comain, who is the group editor for Mortgage Strategy, with her perspective on thinking differently about mortgages in 2023. Rebecca, over to you. So sentiment among brokers is more positive now and the range of mortgages on offer has increased as have business levels despite rising product rates. For example, the latest MoneyFax data found there were 5,200 mortgage products available. That's twice the number on offer in October 2022 in the height of the mini budget fallout. But they, they say a week is a long time in politics and in the mortgage industry, it's even longer. I think the market has learned that what what is this case today might be completely different next week. When it comes to trends in the types of mortgages that are popular at present, fixes are really still the go-to. Trackers had a moment uh, when the base rate was thought to have peaked, but that's no longer the case. Uh, so interest in those has waned. When it comes to first-time buyers, things are challenging still as house, housing supply remains an issue. There has been a return of higher loan-to-value products, though, but with the current cost of house prices, even saving, say, 10% or 15% of the cost of a house is beyond most first-time buyers. On that note, though, one lender has recently launched a 100% loan-to-value mortgage for renters with a strong track record of rental payments. So there have been some rumblings that help to buy may make a comeback after it was finally wound up in March. Uh, there are some other products out there, such as the First Home Scheme, a government scheme which allows buyers to buy a home for 30 to 50% less than its market value. There's also the Deposit Unlock Scheme. This allows first-time buyers to buy a new built home from participating home builders with a 5% deposit. And there's the Mortgage Guarantee Scheme that was extended to the end of this year. Uh, that aims to increase the availability of 95% loan-to-value mortgage products in the market. And there's also the Lifetime ISA, which is an annual 25% bonus from the government on up to £4,000 of contributions per year to a maximum total of £32,000, which allows them to contribute to the purchase of a home. That was 
Rebecca Comain. But now, to go into a bit more detail about some of these mortgages, I'm joined by Michael Clark, who's the Product Policy and Regulatory Manager at Barclays. Michael, great to have you with me. I'm not going to ask what the Product Policy and Regulatory Manager actually does at Barclays, because it sounds like a, an awfully big title. But could you just begin, um, if you would, by telling us, a bit about some of the changes, some of the developments that you're seeing in your world. And I am particularly interested when it comes to different types of mortgages. What are you, what are you seeing? What are you looking forward to? Sure, Phil. No problem at all. And you're right. The job title is quite a big job title. I think the reality <laughs> is what it really means is that my job is to work on mortgage policy and the different ways we help customers to achieve their home buying dreams. I think when we kind of consider what's happening in the current world, and you've highlighted some of the real challenges that face people in the market today around affordability tests, you know, the ever-increasing base rate changes that we've seen over the course of the last kind of six to nine months, which have really put a bit of pressure on people who want to look at buying the first property. I also think that externally we've seen some changes in the market through things like the closure of the Help to Buy scheme in England, um, which was probably a really well-known way for people to be able to get onto the housing ladder and was very well advertised and well understood across the market. So I think that that's created a little bit of a gap. But I think what we'll find as we progress through the course of this year is I think a number of different developers and lenders will look to build their own propositions and their own solutions because customers still have that need to buy a home. And there'll be a lot of people focused on, well, how do we solve for that in order to let people to move forward with their lives? So, so the, the, the help to buy was a government scheme. Uh, but you feel with the end of that, they'll be, actually the lenders themselves will come up with their own schemes. Um, I think it'll be a combination between lenders using what schemes they've already got available or different mortgage types they've got available, combined with some developer schemes that get, get launched out at different periods of time. A lot of house builders look at different ways to structure deals to help people to buy their first home. Um, and they always have a commitment to make a certain percentage of their buildings to be accessible for affordable homes and first-time buyers. So they're always trying to look at different ways to kind of combat that barrier into home ownership. I've read about the family springboard mortgage and other things designed to help first-time buyers. Can you just talk, walk me through, because I don't know much about it. How does it work? So a family springboard mortgage has two kind of distinct parts to it. Um, you actually have the people who want the mortgage, who is no different to any other mortgage. But what you also have alongside them is what we refer to as helpers at Barclays. And they are people who effectively are willing to put money aside into a savings account that acts as your deposit. So let's take a bit of a, a real life scenario. You decide you want to buy a property. It's your first time that you're buying a property, Phil, and you found a house for £200,000. You can actually afford it. So that's great. You've passed all the affordability tests. But what you haven't got is a deposit. And of course, in today's world, you're going to need a reasonable sum of capital. And, and most of the time you're talking 10%, which is £20,000, which for a lot of people takes a period of time to build up. But in this scenario, um, We'll, we'll pretend that I am your, your relative and I'm happy to help you. Good old uh, Uncle Michael. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, I probably am going to be called that soon enough as my children and, and relatives get a bit older. But um, I think what would happen in that scenario is I would put £20,000 into a savings account. You would then get the mortgage for the whole 200000 So you get a 100% loan to value. And You'd so have where's, none of... where's your twenty grand gone? Into a, into a... It goes into a savings account. So it's not lost. It's not been spent or gone anywhere. It's locked away. But it's locked up. Okay. It is indeed. So I can't get that money back for five years. But as long as you pay your mortgage for that five-year term, then I get my money back and I also get the interest it earned in the savings account. So I'm almost giving a 
a, a kind of deposit in lieu, if you like, to give you long enough to pay off that mortgage and reduce your, your loan to value to a place where you can then take it on by yourself. But at the end of the five year term, I get my money back and I get the interest on top of that, which effectively means that I've not lost anything. And that can be really good for people who actually do have some spare capital, but equally aren't in a position to give it away. It might be that that's part of their retirement. So so the lender is is secure because they've actually got the 20 grand deposit in, in, in their bank, in their account. So if I was to default on my mortgage, yep. they have, they're, they're secure, they're covered. Yes, correct. The lender is. And that, that's exactly how that works. It's uh, We are taking that as a, as a way of protecting us against doing the 100% loan to value. Um, but the whole principle is to let family members help other people to effectively get onto the ladder without the need for a deposit. And I, I think that that whole scheme is very much a deposit lever. In in reality, I mean, the, the bank of mum and dad is supposed to be about the one of the top ten biggest lenders, isn't it? But I guess in in um, times of uh, inflation and and cost of living crisis and that kind of thing, mum and dads around the country may well wish to lend, but not give. So actually, using a family springboard mortgage, they can lock up some capital. They're not actually giving it to to, to somebody, but they are helping. Absolutely spot on. And that, that's the big differential, because if you take it out of that family springboard environment, effectively, I'm, I'm not actually putting 20,000 in savings I'm getting back. I've just given it you and it's it's been swallowed into your house. So you're probably very happy either way, to be honest. But unfortunately, I, I've then not got that 20,000 coming back to me plus interest. Although, just so I've understood that correctly, my, my mortgage is actually £20,000 bigger than it may have been. That is right, yeah. Your mortgage would be the 200000 so it'd be the exact amount of the property value. Um, and you would have that fixed for the first five years as well. So you know your payments wouldn't change between that point and when the savings was released. But my mum and dad or my, my uncle Michael um, would be earning interest on the twenty grand that's locked up in their account. Yes, they would. Yeah. So actually, everybody wins out of that situation. It's a really interesting product. And what about this joint borrower sole proprietor? That's another mouthful. You're good at these, aren't you? <laughs> what are th- yeah. Is that aimed at first-time buyers? So yes and no. So it is aimed at first-time buyers, but it's available to anybody. So there's not a requirement to be a first-time buyer to take a joint borrower sole proprietor mortgage. And you are right, it is a mouthful. Most people use an acronym for it, if I'm being honest. What would that be? JB... Uh, SPM, that's all, that's still a mouthful. Yeah, it is. It's just less of a mouthful than the full <laughs> title. Um, how, how does that differ from the family springboard? So whereas we talked about family springboard being a lever around deposit, joint borrower sole proprietor is a lever around income and affordability. So if we try and play out a little bit of the same scenario here, where you want to buy a property for 200000 this time you've got your deposit, you've got 20000 put aside, you know, you, you, you've worked hard and made sure that money's been saved over a period of time. But actually, your income, you're in your first job and you're on £25,000 a year. Well, a bank is generally going to lend between four and four and a half times your income. So straight away, if you're on £25,000, you are talking about getting something in the £100,000 to £112,000 space for loans. Well, you've still got quite a shortfall after your deposit to buy the £200,000 house. But the way the joint borrower sole proprietor mortgage works is that your uncle Michael, um, which seems to be my new name, uh, would come and join you on that mortgage and you would take my income and your income towards that mortgage affordability. So you earn 25, let's say that I'm a little bit more established in life and I earn 35, all of a sudden our income is now 60,000. And when you multiply that by four, we're already past that 200,000 bracket. So 
effectively, you now can have the mortgage for the full amount that you need. The the key difference with joint borrower sole proprietor is that the whole point of it is that I don't own the house though. So you own the house all by yourself in this scenario. Although I am on the mortgage and I am responsible for it, like I would be on a personal loan for a car, I do not own the property. Um, but that does come with advantages. So that's not all bad news because as a first-time buyer, you get exemption from things like stamp duty, which I wouldn't. And of course, you get the benefits of being a first-time buyer. I don't penalise you irrespective of whether or not I already own a property. Um, so so that is the pro of not being on the, the, the title and owning the house, really. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a very different lever. And I always think that those two propositions are focused very differently on what's the problem the person faces. Is it they don't have savings or is it that they need more income to afford what they want? Is it popular? Uh, yes, is a very short answer. We do a lot of joint borrower sole proprietor mortgages. Um, and actually, although we've seen the total number of mortgages declining over this year in terms of the number of people who ask for one, um, the number of joint borrower sole proprietors has remained very stable. So whilst the overall volume is coming down, that percentage of joint borrower sole proprietors are actually growing a little bit. And I think that's because people need to find alternative ways to solve some of these challenges that they face. How, in your opinion, should brokers... Um, decide or advise which one of those is appropriate for a specific client? I think a lot of it comes down with how you have a, a conversation with the customer and, and understanding what it is that they want to achieve. And, and Some of this is a personal view, but I don't think anybody ever wakes up and has a dream to get a mortgage. I think people dream about getting a home. Yes. And often people find the home before they actually even enter into a mortgage conversation because it's seeing a house or having that thought about a home that drives everything else after it. Well, that's the so, exciting bit. Choosing a mortgage is somewhat less exciting, but, that, but actually rather more important. I, well, I always say get it done first. Yeah, and, and, and I think in some ways it would be ideal if people did because yeah. then they already know what they can do before they actually end up in a scenario finding out, well, actually, this is almost the what you could have won moment. But um, particularly when you're having that initial conversation, I think it's trying to understand what is it that somebody wants to have because instead of trying to work out what you can give them as a maximum amount of borrowing, start by actually trying to establish what is it they want to achieve. Well, I want to get a house. It's this type of house. It's this type of value. And then work back from that point in time. If there is a barrier that comes to the fact, well, actually, you can't have that, why is it they can't achieve it? Is that the deposit or is that actually because they can't pass the affordability test that banks have? And depending on the answer to those questions the customer gives their broker, then that should lead on to the next part around, well, okay, so you've told me you don't have enough deposit. So what is it that you've got out there that might be able to help you? Or do you have any relatives who would support you? Well, actually, my mum and dad have said they'll give me some money towards it. Brilliant. Do they need the money back? Yes, they do. Okay feels like a family springboard situation uh, or alternatively it might be well actually your income's not big enough to take that type of mortgage but let's talk about some of the ways that you could boost that income because they, they are effectively boosting either that deposit lever or yes. boosting that income lever it's great to know that there is there is help out there and, and and people are coming up with inventive solutions long may that continue um can we just finish off with offset mortgages and who can have one and, and what brokers need to know and i should actually caveat this with i actually have a barclays offset mortgage so i i know a little bit about it but um for for any members of the audience that aren't familiar with offset i think they're fantastic but over to you um who, who can have one and what do brokers need to know 
Cool. Uh, so the first uh, answer is really easy because the answer is everyone. If you would like one, you can have one. Um, so we, we will let you. Said I mean, by kind are... Uncle Michael. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, yep. I mean, always within the confines of rules. Of I mean, for example, you've got to be 18 years old to have a mortgage, but mm. in those type of things, no, aside, but generally... I'm, sure, I'm sure people listening would, would kind yeah. of get that point. But certainly everybody can have an offset. I think the key thing, though, is to make an offset be valuable to the person, they must have an amount of capital that is held in cash. So whether you have some savings, whether you keep a large balance in your current account, you've got to have some capital. And that's because the way the offset works quite simply, and and clearly you'll know this very well, is that if you owe £100,000 on your mortgage and you actually have £100,000 in savings, you effectively don't really pay anything at all because the savings interest pays the mortgage interest. So they just offset each other. Um, And it works in your favour because on savings accounts you pay tax and actually you're not likely to earn enough interest on your savings post-tax to ever be close to what you're being charged on your mortgage. So why get paid £10 a month for keeping your money in the bank, but get charged £20 a month for taking the money through your mortgage? Why not just don't pay anything and don't get anything? And that's the principle of how offset kind of helps people. Um, You can set it in different ways. So you have quite a bit of flexibility in the product. You can choose to actually pay less every month. So you can use the amount you've got in savings to reduce how much you're going to pay on your direct debit. Or you can use the amount you've got in savings to actually make your mortgage get paid off quicker by reducing the term. So if your contracted payment was 500, you'd always pay that. But all that savings value you're gaining through that offset arrangement just brings the capital down that you own the mortgage. So you finish early. Um, and, and effectively, that's that's in its simplest way how it works. There are some nuances to it, which I, I think probably a less known, which is particularly in a rate changing environment, how that affects an offset, because you're always using the months before savings versus your current month's mortgage. But if you go through banks' policy websites or their product websites, because there is a number of different providers outside of Barclays for a number of these products, they'll generally explain all their different rules and how they work and give you the detail behind them. I mean, not for me to say, but I've, I've kind of felt that people who work on commission basis or get paid in dividends or have kind of chunky bits of, 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 of or irregular income that offset can really work. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. Super stuff, really informative and useful. You certainly know your product policy. Thank you so much. Good to talk. Thanks, Phil. And great to speak to you too. That was Michael Clark, product policy and regulatory manager at Barclays. And of course, earlier in the episode, you also heard from Rebecca Comain, the group editor for Mortgage Strategy. Thanks for listening. I hope you found it useful and I will look forward to talking to you next time. All the best. The views expressed by external guests in this podcast are their opinions only and do not necessarily reflect the views of Barclays. Thanks for listening to Mortgage Insider. I'm Phil Spencer, and this has been a Fresh Air production for Barclays. Please rate, review, and follow the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.